This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. We are using the Apostles' Creed to move through what Christians believe. All Christians at all times, everywhere, have always believed. And today we're talking about this line of the Creed that Jesus was suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. <clears throat> Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he was poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. And then Psalm 22. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, I'll go through the first six verses and then skip to verse 16 and finish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. That you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. 
For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I'll tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of the prophets, for those who prophesied in song and in verse, who looked forward and spoke of things that were for, are for us, our past. And Father, we pray that you would help us to see what they saw. We pray that you would illuminate our eyes and open our ears so that we may see what you have done, that we may be among that generation that sees the king and sees that he has done it. We trust you, God, to do this by the power of your spirit. Amen. These, uh, some portions of these two passages may be relatively familiar to you. Isaiah 53 is uh, part of these, these songs in the book of Isaiah called the Songs of the Servant. And Psalm 22 starts with a quote that you may have heard from Jesus' lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And um, I skipped 10 verses in the middle, but I would encourage you to go back again and meditate on the whole psalm. It's an important principle of reading the New Testament, that when the New Testament quotes a piece of a verse or a verse from the Old Testament, you should read the whole section. The assumption is that you will do that. Actually, the assumption is that you know it, that you've memorized it, and you just remember the whole section. Assuming that you are like me and you have not done that, you should use the notes that are in your Bible to see where that came from and flip back and read the whole section. So when Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, he is telling you, read all of Psalm 22. Because the whole thing is important. 
Today, we have in view the cross. The decree directs our attention there. It says, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And if you are reading the creed slowly, or if you're paying attention to it, maybe in a way that you haven't before, maybe you've never looked at it, this is actually the first indication in the creed that anything has gone wrong. The beginning starts with God, who's the creator of everything, and then it talks about Jesus becoming incarnate, and then there's suffering. The creed does not elucidate or outline every single thing that Christians believe. It illuminates the central, most important thing that Christians believe. So this is the first indication that all is not right in the world that the good God has made. And here, Jesus, the one who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, he suffers. He's crucified, dead, and he's buried. And here in this line is the central distinctive nature of the story of Jesus. And it is the line that Christianity will throw out there knowing that for all the world, this is an incomprehensible statement. It is inexplicable in its claim and it is shocking if what has been said previously is actually true. It's Really weird that Pontius Pilate ends up, he's the only other named person besides Jesus and Mary. Pontius Pilate plays an important role, yet of all the people you're going to throw in there, I mean, I don't know, throw a Peter in there or, or something, but it's Pontius Pilate. And it's his name serves this basic function for the people who are reciting the Apostles' Creed and reciting it early on, and for us, there's no date on the calendar, there's no year that's given. Pontius Pilate becomes a way for all of us who confess it to reckon back to a particular time in history at a particular place. And this is where the whole nature and notion of Christianity differentiates itself from other faiths Other religions have myths and spiritual stories, but Christianity is saying there is a date and a time on a calendar in a place, and God did certain things on the ground of humanity. And something specifically was affixed to the ground, and God acted redemptively in that particular moment. It's not a metaphor It's not just a story. It is a historical event that is irrevocable and unchangeable. So in those little words, we are meant in our mind to cast our minds back to this time when the systems and expectations of man ran up against what God was doing in the real king of Israel. Because in the crucifixion of Jesus, the powers of this world were the hope of the people of God. What ultimately Israel wanted was a king who would rule and overthrow Caesar, overthrow any and all of the opponents that were in the land. And Pontius Pilate embodies those powers, embodies those hopes 
The hopes of politics are resting in Pontius Pilate. The political hopes of Israel are are the only hopes that Israel has. And when Jesus time and again says, I will not embrace or embody your political hopes in the way that you desire, they are furious. And they reject him because Jesus will not do what they demand. And so they turn to what was their enemy to execute for them the vengeance of their disappointed political hopes. And God embraces their vengeance and takes upon Himself this suffering. The the passage that we, we read in Isaiah 53 is a series of songs throughout Isaiah that speaks of this individual who is coming, who will be God's servant to execute God's will. And it's unclear as the story and the narrative and the prophecy shape and change over the book of Isaiah, who will this be? Who is this servant? And sometimes it it sounds like the servant is Israel, and sometimes it sounds like a prophet sent to Israel, and and maybe it's Isaiah. And then all of a sudden in, in Isaiah 53, there's this definitive identity as this person who is not Isaiah, and it's not Israel. It's somebody else who steps into the story, and the the profound message of the early part of Isaiah 53 is that the people of God, Israel themselves, do not recognize the servant. He is in some way hidden from them because His appearance is so unexpected. He is not what they have desired. He is not beautiful to look at. He is not telling them what they want to hear. He is despised and rejected by the people of God themselves. And yet, somehow, their rejection of Him does not does not stop the servant from taking on the servant's task. The task is actually because of and embodied in their rejection. It's because they are a kind of people that cannot recognize the servant, that the servant has come to serve them. And he takes upon himself all of their own transgression. Did you hear that in the reading of Psalm 53? The the writer Isaiah is saying, this is all happening for our sin, our transgression, our iniquity. Again and again, that repeated emphasis on that possessive pronoun. This is ours, and He is taking it. And the people of God could not would not recognize it in Psalm 53, would not, could not recognize it in the Gospels. Because we expect God to come in and to come in in glory and to come in in power. And Jesus came to suffer. Jesus' life on earth to some degree was suffering. It is not just this moment, it's not this few hours of his trial and his execution. It was his life. He was not just rejected in the, 
the days of the weeks of his passion. It was the entirety of his life where even his family, his his blood kin could not understand what he is doing and just wanted him to come home and quit this crazy crusade. His whole life was that of rejection and sorrow. It's not that he was never happy. Of course he was. Children are attracted to him. Children are generally not attracted to people who are perpetually in sorrow. He's a man of joy who attracts children to himself. But the whole of his time on earth is an embracing of all of humanity's both little and great sorrows. He knew what it meant to be hungry. He knew what it meant to be homeless. He knew what it meant to be rejected and despised, to be misunderstood. And the instrument of his death is itself a statement of the nature of God's work for his people on the cross. You know, we have the cross as a Christian, so it's there, um, under there. We have this, the cross as a statement and symbol of Christianity. And when you see it so many times, we become immune to what we are seeing. And because we are so far removed from the usage of the cross as an actual means of execution, we are not anymore shocked by the cross. But the cross itself is scandalous. Fleming Rutledge, a retired Episcopal priest, she, she writes this book on the crucifixion, this massive book. It's, it won the Book of the Year by Christianity Today in 2017. It's a beautiful, extended reflection on the nature of the cross. And one of her chapters is about the scandal of the cross. And it is outrageously offensive for, to die on the cross. And the Romans created it that way on purpose. Romans know how to kill people quickly and efficiently. They are expert and master killers. And the cross is a deliberately inefficient way to kill somebody. It is designed to be a means of not just public execution, but public humiliation. It is torture before the eyes of all who watch. So that you are humiliated, even as you are dying, that your body is left oftentimes on the cross so the birds of the air can come and feast on your carcass. So that in the degradation of your body, you are being told, do not dare cross Rome. Do not dare cross the powers that rule this place. Do not cross Rome. And God allows himself the humiliation, the shamefulness, the scandal of the cross to become the place where he is executed, where he dies. And so when the church takes up this horrible, horrendous means of execution, it is offensive and nonsensical to everybody who hears the story and sees the symbol. This is outrageous that the Christians would lift up the cross and treat it as anything other than repulsive. And of course, Jesus is not the only person in history who's been crucified. There were thousands of people who were crucified. 
wasn't novel. It wasn't the first time that somebody had been crucified. But it is precisely because it was so well known that that the usage of it in Scripture and beyond is important. It is the scandal and offense of it that gives us a clue about the nature of what God intends to do. It is the It is the full embrace of rejection and darkness and depravity that defines the servant that Isaiah sang about. And when Jesus is extended himself out on the cross and he's dying in naked humiliation before the city that was supposed to be the place of his enthronement, He sings this song from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This psalm that tells how you can count all of my bones. The dogs encircle me. I am a worm. I'm barely recognizable as human. Because, as Isaiah has taught us to think of this person, he is assuming and embracing and picking up all of our own shame. God has not excluded himself from the great burden of suffering and death. But in this suffering servant has picked up and embraced the shamefulness and the darkness that we all have embraced. When Jesus is stretched out on the cross... You are meant to look at the cross and to see the powers of darkness unleashed. You are meant to see this is what sin is. This is what sin does. All of the little petty sins that you and I hide and never talk about with anyone They are shameful and voracious and dark. And on the cross, they are exposed for what they are. They are not innocent mistakes. They destroy and consume humanity and rend creation to pieces. And it is the very essence of the innocent. The only truly innocent one who lets his body become the canvas of our own sin and darkness. And not only is it the darkness that we have embraced and the hiddenness of our own heart, it is all the horror of sin that has happened to us. It is all the vileness of abuse and lovelessness and fatherlessness and broken homes. It is all the rejection that you have received for no good reason. It is all of that sorrow and darkness and shame that you have borne all on your own, spread all over the naked body of the Son of God. The cross is horrific. And it is shameful. And it is scandalous. And we believe that Jesus is on there 
because of his great joy. Jesus understands the full horror of the cross before he goes on to it. He is not put on the cross because God needs some dog to kick because he is so angry. He is not forced into it by, not, by some superior power. He willingly ascends the, the, the hill of the skull. He ascends the hill of crucifixion. And he allows his own hands to be nailed there. For his own great joy. This is the surprising inexplicable way that we now look at this instrument of torture and horror. The author of Hebrews says that it was the joy that was set before him for that that he endured the cross. Somehow, in some way that we still cannot wrap our minds around, on the other side of the cross is the disempowerment of all of those horrendous powers. Somehow on the other side of this instrument of shame and torture is a way that people, humanity, can be restored and reinvigorated and given the honor, not just of being healed, but of being sat on the throne itself, that you would be receiving the inheritance of the very divine king that you and I have repeatedly rebelled against and thrown our hatred towards because he was not what we expected. You can receive His inheritance on the other side of the cross. And all of the shame that you have carried because of what you have done, or what because, because of what has been done to you, all of that shame is relieved because you are not those shameful things anymore. But on the other side of the cross, you're just a son, you're a daughter, and in your mouth has been put a prayer, Oh, Abba, Father, come and help me. And what you see in the cross for sure and forever, as surely as Pontius Pilate was the executioner, as surely as it happened in history, God will surely relieve you of all your shame and all your brokenness and make you His. There is no ounce of your suffering that God Himself is not personally familiar with. And therefore, there is no shred of your suffering and your sorrow and shame which God cannot relieve and Himself heal. As surely as His bones were broken and His flesh was stripped from its place, God can make you whole and restore you. We do not say that Jesus spoke metaphorically of his death. We mean he really died and descended into the grave. And you yourself, when you stand and face the prospect of your own death, when you stand and your toes are on the edge of your own grave, you are invited to know and to remember that even here, God has been. Even to the depths of the grave, God has himself 
descended. So that there is nowhere that you can go that he has himself not been. There is no thing that has afflicted you that is he himself has not taken up. Even if you never understood what God wanted to do for you, even if you have raged against him, that he would not come and be what you expected or wanted him to be, he will still yet do good to you so that we might be those people spoken of in Psalm 22, that future generation, those people who are coming, who might look back to the king and say, the king, he has done it. He has done everything. We didn't expect it. We didn't plan for it. We are still bewildered and scandalized by the cross. But in the cross, the king has done it. And now we can be free. The instrument of execution and shame is now the gateway to our own freedom. And it is the joy of God to invite you into that freedom. It is the joy of God to put his mercy on display. It is the joy of God to triumphantly laugh at the powers of darkness, to use the cross as his own throne of exaltation. It is his great triumph to say that not even the darkest of darkness that you can cast upon him is strong enough. He triumphs over your deepest of shames, the worst of your pain, all of your sorrow and all of your suffering, anything that the powers of sin and hell can throw at him. He laughs in their face and he triumphs over them in his great joy. In his great joy, he has been able to lead his people out of captivity. In his great joy, he has led a final exodus. In his great joy, the glory of God is on display that anything the darkness can throw at him, he has undone. Even darkness and death itself. He has laughed in the face of it. Death has done its worst. And death itself cannot win. The joy of God is before you this morning. Even if you are so laden with sorrow, even if you are consumed by suffering, even if you are so burdened by shame, there is nothing that you can name that would keep you out of the joy of God. You may not know what that joy actually looks or feels like. God may bring it to you in a way that you may not expect. But there is no shame or suffering that can keep you from Him. This morning, you're invited to see the cross and respond. Whether you've known God for a long time or you've never responded to Him, the cross is planted in the ground in front of you now and forever. Will you see Jesus crucified before you? Will you see the goodness of God spread out in His spread arms? 
And will you respond to embrace him? Let me pray for us. Father, I, I'm so struck by the terrific, holy irony of the cross. An overwhelmingly, powerfully dark image becomes for us. An exposition of the glory of your love. You took up all of the darkness and sorrow of our own evil. Like Isaiah says, the ripping of your flesh becomes the way that we are healed. Father, I pray for all of those who are here today and are heavy burdened by their sorrow and their suffering. Suffering that maybe they've created by their choices. Suffering of things done to them. And Father, I pray that you would do once again for us in this present moment, which you've already done in fullness in the cross, that you would disempower the powers of darkness, that you would defang the powers of shame and sorrow. Father, I pray that we would be a people who freely expose our wounds, that we would not hide them from one another, we would not hide them from you, but instead we would name them, we would wrestle with them, we would ask together, how might God bring victory here? How might God bring freedom here? How might God bring life here? We thank you for the great joy of Jesus. I pray, God, that you would bring us more and more into that great joy. That we would leave aside the desperation of living for our own appetites and agendas. Let us instead turn to the wellspring of joy in life. Father, we thank you for your great work. Help our eyes to see ever more clearly and our hearts to grow softer in your hands. We trust that you'll do it now and until the day that your work is completed. By the power of the Holy Spirit, to the praise of Jesus, amen.